Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Hello and welcome to The Sidebar, presented by True Crime Daily, taking you inside the courtrooms and trials of high-profile and notorious cases from across the country. I'm your host, Joshua Ritter. I'm a criminal defense lawyer based in Los Angeles and previously an L.A. County prosecutor for nearly a decade. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at JoshuaRitterESQ or at JoshuaRitter.com. We are recording this on Friday, August 11th, 2023. In this week's episode, a man dubbed the widower who has been suspected of killing three of his six ex-wives will stand trial again for the alleged murder of his sixth wife, following a surprise court decision to overturn his prior conviction and death sentence. Plus new developments in the University of Idaho murders as the defense raises an alleged alibi for suspected killer Brian Koberger. But first, Canadian rapper Tory Lanez is sentenced to 10 years in prison following his conviction for the shooting of fellow artist Megan Thee Stallion. Today, we are joined by Natalie Whittingham Burrell, a criminal defense attorney and legal commentator you can find online at Natalie Lawyer Chick. Natalie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Joshua. It's nice to see you. It's nice to see you as well. We've been looking forward to this. I know that you have uh, a following uh, online that's pretty faithful, and uh, I know you do a lot of this kind of legal commentary. But t- please, so for listeners get to a chance to know who you are, tell us a little bit about your background and current practice. Sure. So I, like I said, I'm a criminal defense attorney, but more than that, I'm a public defender. I always put it that way. I'm not just a criminal defense attorney. I have the honor to be a public defender. And I've been practicing here in the state of Maryland since 2011. Um, In 2020, I launched my YouTube channel, Natalie Lawyer Chick, during the pandemic so that I could cover legal topics. And we've grown quite a following there. Uh, Our subscribers are called the Lawyer Chicklets. And they're (laughs) (laughs) There are some great, fun people um, that love legal commentary and true crime. And so if anyone's ever interested, come check us out. Absolutely. Well, we uh, because of that and because of your following, we're very excited to have you here today. And I know that you've been following these cases closely, so I'm curious to hear your insights. We'll jump right in out of Los Angeles, California, where Canadian hip hop artist Tory Lanez has been sentenced to 10 years in prison 
following his conviction on three felony charges surrounding the shooting of fellow artist Megan the Stallion. The shooting, which took place after a 2020 party at the home of Kylie Jenner, left Megan with bullet fragments in her feet, which later had to be surgically removed. Lanes reportedly yelled for Megan to dance before discharging a firearm at her as she was walking away from an SUV that the two had been traveling in. Megan initially attempted to protect Lanes in the shooting, telling police that she had cut her feet on glass. However, she later named Lanes as her shooter in an Instagram Live video and a subsequent song entitled Shots Fired. I just, I just love that that's where we're at today, that that's how you, you come forward about how you're the victim of a crime. After coming forward with her allegations, Megan faced intense scrutiny from media outlets and the hip hop community, which Lane's even creating an album which questioned her versions of events. Lane was, Lane's, pardon me, was convicted last December on charges including assault with a semi-automatic firearm, carrying a loaded, unregistered firearm in a vehicle, and discharging a firearm with gross negligence. Attorneys for Lane sought a shorter sentence, arguing for probation and alleging that Lane's actions were the result of an alcohol abuse disorder combined with anxiety and PTSD of his mother's unexpected death. However, prosecutors roundly rejected the idea that mental illness was a focus of the case, noting that such claims were not presented during during trial. The judge ultimately handed Lanes a 10-year sentence, remarking, actions have consequences, and there are no winners in this case. All right, Natalie, jump right in. I want to just, what are your thoughts? Were, were you surprised by this sentence? 10 years is a lot of time. 10 years is a lot of time. And if this was my average case where there was a contact shooting and someone had a minimal criminal record, I would say, ah, that's quite a bit. This was not your average case. Uh, there was a lot of media attention around this case and a lot of that that was generated by Lanes himself. Uh, this is something that was borne out during the trial that Lanes made a song in which he uh, called into question uh, Megan Thee Stallion's version of events, uh, a music video in which he um, used a horse's leg in order to make fun of her version of events. And so it seemed like he was taunting um, her uh, story, her trauma, and he was the person that caused it. It's going to be very hard to say that you're remorseful or not yeah. a further danger. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm glad that you brought that up because that was highlighted um, by the prosecution in the sentencing. And I wanted to talk to you about that because we're talking about actions that he took in conduct not related to the... well. Related in a sense, but not part of what he's actually charged of. And the prosecution, uh, in regards to that, said that not only did the defendant do the heinous acts of shooting her, he then subjected her to two and a half years of hell. And I get it. I think it demonstrates a lack of remorse. But um, I guess my question is, how appropriate do you feel it is to have the words and actions and conduct of a defendant after an event unrelated, unconnected in the actual commission of the crime to play a role in sentencing. So I'm of two minds about that. You know, if it's truly unrelated, like, you know, uh, after this, my client joined some type of organization that you maybe don't agree with or went to an event that the prosecution doesn't support. You shouldn't be using that against him. The problem here, and, and, and I empathize with defense counsel here because you just can't control your clients, you know, but the problem here is that 
it could be seen as a form of witness intimidation, attempting to intimidate her into dropping it or not wanting to testify in order to stop the deluge of abuse that she received online. I mean, I don't know if this is true or not, but there have been allegations from Megan Thee Stallion herself that he was paying certain bloggers in order to put out negative stories about herself. And that was mentioned in the sentencing in her statement. So I think it's a little bit different just because of that witness intimidation uh, aspect of it. If it was directed at someone else, if it was him saying things without mentioning her, maybe. But he just he crossed the line, I think, unfortunately. That's a really important distinction that you make. And I appreciate that point that it's it would be one thing if he was making songs and talking very publicly about how he's innocent. But when you start to direct that towards the alleged victim, then yeah, I guess you're right. That can be interpreted as trying to dissuade someone from even coming forward, which already she so she indicated some reluctance at least to come forward about it initially, and then didn't even come forward about it in a very traditional way. So you can understand why the prosecution would be concerned with making sure that those victims, that her rights were protected. Um, what about, uh, he's a Canadian citizen, so there is mm. the possibility of deportation here. I mean, this often, mm. this happens many times, this becomes an issue, especially in California, yeah. where somebody commits a crime of violence, and then we're talking about them not being a citizen, then perhaps being deported. What do you think are the chances for Tory Lanes? Right. So this is actually something that I deal with quite a bit in my practice, where we'll have people either documented or undocumented and their risks are different depending on their status. But here it's pretty clear that he's at extreme risk of deportation. And that's because I believe he is, of course, documented. I'm not sure if he has a green card or a visa, if he's permanent or not. It doesn't matter, um, because once you are convicted of a violent felony or an aggravated felony, which he is convicted of here um, in the federal system. This would be considered an aggravated felony. Um, he is at risk of uh, deportation and removal proceedings um, and that he's not open to any mitigating factors or stay of deportation because the crime that he's convicted of is an aggravated felony. And it also is is potentially a domestic violence offense since they had a romantic relationship at the time of the shooting. So for all of those reasons, it's very likely he'll be deported. I'm so glad you brought up that aspect about the the relationship or alleged relationship, whatever it was at the time between the two of them, because one of the things that the DA highlighted um, in a press conference afterwards about this was that it, it, it she being a celebrity really was able to shed, shed some light on issues dealing with women and, and violence against them, especially at the hands of men that they might be in the relationship in a relationship with. And I'm curious if you think that that played a role in all of this, because the case wasn't your traditional domestic violence case that we usually see. Um, it was more of this kind of overblown, and I'm not trying to minimalize it. I think it was very dangerous, but it was almost this overblown fight where the the whole thing of telling her to dance and then it, I think it was the allegation was the shot at the ground and it ricocheted and hit her but do you think that the domestic violence aspect of it or the male on female crime aspect of it played a role in all this 
Um, I and, think and, and in his sentencing, part of me in, in particular. Sure, sure. I think it's certainly something to consider. I, I like the word that she used overblown, not because the prosecution is overblowing it by pursuing it, but because this was something that did not have to become what it became. There was no reason for anyone to take out a gun when there's an, a verbal argument about, you know, who's sleeping with who or who likes whom. You know, these are interpersonal relationships everyone has to deal with. And there's no reason for a gun to come out. So in that way, yes, it's it's completely extreme that a gun was ever taken out. And anytime you introduce a gun, you have to be aware of the risk of hurting someone. And so in domestic uh, violence situations or any time where people have romantic involvement with each other, it appears that the emotions are so much more heightened that, you know, when your feelings are involved, your love is involved, your lust is involved, it's possible that people act extremely irrationally. So I think that does play a part in it. She's not your typical um I would say vulnerable victim in that she doesn't rely on him financially. They don't live together, but there is that romantic um, uh, tilt to it. And I think that that does play a role in how you see the sentence. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with you. I'm, I, it didn't seem to be highlighted in the media in the way that they were following it, but I imagine that that, that was something that the prosecution made sure to drive home to the jurors. And they obviously... Uh, bought into all of it, and it, the case was convincing enough to them, and to the judge, uh, it was a convincing enough case to be as serious for a 10-year sentence. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder every episode features special guests twists turns and the mystery of a missing co-host available on the odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Let's now turn to Moscow, Idaho, where according to new court filings in the University of Idaho murder case, defense attorneys allege that Brian Koberger has an alibi for the night of the brutal slayings. Koberger was charged with four counts of first-degree murder and one count of burglary for the stabbing deaths of Kaylee Gonsalves, Madison Mogan, Zena Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin. The four college students were massacred in their off-campus home in the early morning hours of November 13, 2022. 
Koberger's defense has now claimed that the suspect had a habit of going for long drives by himself, conveniently, which he was allegedly doing at the time of the murders. Saying in part, Mr. Koberger has long had a habit of going for drives alone. Often he would go for drives at night. He did so late on November 12th and into November 13th, 2022. Mr. Koberger is not claiming to be at a specific location at a specific time. Really kind of a strange way of putting all of that. The defense has indicated that they intend to corroborate their alibi through cross-examination of the state's witnesses, presentation of expert witnesses, or potential unnamed witnesses. The search for Koberger's vehicle was a key piece in the investigation that led to his arrest, with investigators claiming the car was seen multiple times between Koberger's campus at Washington State University and the crime scene, roughly a 15-minute drive away. Police also heavily relied on cell phone tracking evidence to place Koberger near the murder scene before and after the time of the slaying, but notably his cell phone was allegedly turned off during when the murders are believed to have taken place. The defense has also revealed their strategy in discrediting the genealogy testing that was used to allegedly establish a DNA link between Koberger and a knife sheath found at the home where the students were killed. According to an affidavit penned by a doctor of genealogy, the methods used to match Koberger's DNA were questionable. The doctor noted that many popular ancestry sites now prohibit forensic or investigative genetic genealogy in their databases. Koberger's trial is tentatively set for October 2nd. All right, Natalie, let's first chat briefly about this concept of kind of compelled disclosure of alibi evidence. Uh, in most cases, the defense, uh, I always say this, I even say this in, in voir dire when I'm speaking to, to potential jurors, if I'm defending a case, that the, the defense does not have the burden. Uh, they can sit on their hands if they want. Now, there is this idea of, of, com- of mutual discovery, but um, this idea of compelling evidence, meaning if you want to present any kind of defense that may deal with an alibi, you're going to have to give up who that person is and what they're going to say ahead of time. Walk us through that. How does that work in practice? And 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 I guess my other part that I'm hoping you can touch on is, do you feel that this push, pushes up against the protections of the Fifth Amendment and that burden of proof? I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but I'm of two minds here. Yeah. Um, and... This one's real tough for me. Clearly, we know that the prosecution has the burden to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. It is not the defendant's burden to prove their case. It's not the defendant's burden to prove themselves not guilty. But what I'm concerned about is when the defense has to reveal basically what their theory of the case is. And that's more what this alibi disclosure looks like. Here's our theory of the case. Our client wasn't there and he was driving around. Then that kind of gives up some of the defendants right to sit back on their hands, as you said, and make the prosecutor prove their case. Um, And it gives the prosecutor something to work with from the defense side that they wouldn't otherwise have. Now, I'll kind of draw a distinction with my state. Um, I practice in the state of Maryland, and we do have an alibi witness disclosure uh, requirement, but it doesn't look like this. It's where you have a person who would say, ah, Mr. Koberger was at McDonald's, and I actually uh, sold him a burger at the time that 
he's supposed to have committed this crime. He couldn't have committed the crime because he was across the town at McDonald's. And otherwise, you wouldn't have to disclose my client was driving around, you know, something that would really only come from your client's testimony. Uh, and I don't think that that's fair that he would have to. But you know, I, I don't know about the great state of Idaho. They also don't allow for an insanity defense. So they do things yeah. differently there. So, yeah. you know, who knows? Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I agree with you. I'm, I, I don't, I kind of fall on both sides of this in that I understand that the prosecution is entitled to some extent to that we don't have these the, the idea of you know surprise witnesses and shock defenses that that it's not like we see in the movies where it's all you know the the defense can kind of hold on to something and wait to the last second and surprise everybody with it and catch the prosecution on their heels mostly um but i do agree with you in the idea that the the defense is allowed to counterpunch and that they don't have to be the one to first explain their theory of the case as you were saying and proof of that is that in many jurisdictions the defense doesn't even have to give an opening statement and they can reserve that until they begin their case in chief the reason for that being they want to see everything that the prosecution is going to say first because their theory may change because of like what i said they're allowed to counterpunch and kind of react to what the prosecution says but this um, requirement in Idaho seems to push them to the edge of saying, no, here is my theory. And if you read that motion that they filed, the Koberger's team, it's very specific on what they intend to do. And I wonder, wonder does this somehow pigeonhole them and, and uh, pre prevent them from changing that theory, depending on how the case unfolds at trial? It, I agree with you. There does seem to be some sort of conflict here. Um, Given that the defense did not provide a specific location or eyewitness, um, my other thinking is, that, is this just kind of uh, covering their bases? In other words, does it leave open the possibility of them being able to um, kind of um, bob and weave at trial by, but not be precluded from making an alibi defense? Do you think that could be the purpose of this? Those were actually my thoughts exactly when I was reading through it again. And this is maybe a second or third time reading it. The his lead attorney, Ann Taylor, is a very well-qualified, death penalty qualified public defender. She has an excellent reputation that precedes her. And so I think the reason that it's so general, he was driving around, you know, we'll see what people say in order to corroborate that, is that it leaves them leeway. It leaves them wiggle room in case something else is developed in the trial that's helpful to them so that no one can turn around and say, well, you didn't assert that in your alibi. And so now we get to either rebut it or ask for some type of jury instruction against it it seems like it's it's just general enough that they could fit almost anything into that unless yeah. they're going to say that he was actually at mcdonald's down the street at the time that the murder happened right right it makes me wonder too it sounds like they must take this very seriously in idaho that like like you said where you practice in maryland same, same but to some extent in California, if you're, you know, the the defense has to put a witness list together. And if that witness is going to be an alibi witness, they kind of have to give an offer of proof of what that person might testify to ahead of time. Um, but for this kind of a detailed 
uh, motion to be filed makes me wonder if this isn't something that defense attorneys really have to deal with up there where a judge will just stop them in their tracks if they even get close to presenting what might seem like alibi evidence. But we we will see. I agree with you. The defense team does seem like they are definitely very experienced in this case. And I I think they need to be because I think they got their hands full. Uh, just give us an idea of what you think to expect over the next coming weeks on this case. It's supposed to start in October. You think there's any chance of that happening? Um, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it happened in October uh, just because of you've got these two top notch teams. And it seems like Taylor's team, the minute she got it, she was at the scene. They were photographing. She's got experts. So I think it's very possible. And um, the thing I want to point out to you guys about this case is do not discount their opposition or challenging to that DNA evidence. I know, you know, DNA is DNA, right? Like we, it's solid science, it really is. However, the person that they retained, Steve Mercer, used to be the DNA trainer for the Public Defender's Office of the State of Maryland, where I currently oh. work. And he trained me in DNA, um, in challenging DNA evidence when I first started practicing. I went to like DNA college with him. He is fantastic. So if there's anything to find there, he will find it. So don't discount, you know, usually I'm like, oh, there's DNA. It's a foregone conclusion. But once they said Steve Mercer was involved, I said, oh, well, there might be something there. We'll see. Interesting. We appreciate that insight. And well, and and they better be ready for it because I think the case really rises and falls on that. They have a lot of corroborating evidence. They have a lot to support it. But the, the, the linchpin in this whole thing is that DNA on that knife sheath. If the defense is able to offer any kind of a reasonable explanation for how, why his DNA would end up there, they may have a puncher's chance in this whole thing. So we'll, we'll see. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Our last case uh, moves us over to Las Vegas, Nevada, where Thomas Randolph, a man once dubbed the widower by media outlets, is set to stand trial again for the 2008 deaths of his wife and hitman Randolph had allegedly hired to kill her. Randolph's sixth wife, Sharon Cozy, and the couple's occasional handyman, Michael Miller, were found murdered in Randolph's home after he called 911. At the time, Randolph told officers that a masked intruder had killed his wife before Randolph shot the man. Following Cozy's death, Randolph received nearly $400,000 in life insurance payouts related to her passing. After further investigation, authorities alleged that Randolph had conspired with Miller to kill Cozy and Randolph was convicted in 2017 for both murders and sentenced to death. The Nevada Supreme Court, however, later reviewed Randolph's case ultimately overturning his conviction, ruling that prior bad acts evidence used by the prosecution should not have been allowed at trial. The evidence included allegations that he had killed his second wife, Becky Randolph, to receive nearly $500,000 payout in insurance, a crime he was acquitted for in the state of Utah. 
While prosecutors are no longer seeking the death penalty due to the defendant's age, he is now 68, Randolph will again stand trial for the kill- for the killings of his sixth wife with opening statements set to begin as we're recording this episode. All right, talk to us, Natalie, about the idea of prior bad acts evidence. What is it and why does it seem to be prone um, to misuse by the prosecution? So it said it, the rules of evidence, we call them 404B, but, you know, the statute might change from state to state, but federal is 404B. The rules of evidence dictate that when someone is standing accused of a crime, the fact that they have committed a bad act or even the same crime before should not be introduced against them because it's prejudicial unless certain other exceptions are made. And that it's like a piece of Swiss cheese, that rule. There's a whole bunch of holes in it where those exceptions lie. But pretty much you can't introduce it to show just because they did this crime before, they must have done it again. It has to instead show something like this is the way in which they commit this crime, like say a serial killer or something like that. Or this person had some other type of identity. It's like this, this shows that this is the same person who's committing the crime identity. But without those things or uh, impeachment or something like that, that evidence should not come in because what does it do to the mind of a juror? If I hear that someone um, has three or four wives, four wives who have previously predeceased this wife who has been murdered, I'm going to think this guy did it because that's just common sense. And I'm going to set aside everything else I've heard in that trial because this is a guy who has probably killed his prior four wives. That is actually an improper inference. You should be making a judgment based on the evidence of this particular case. There is the possibility that someone could have killed their first wife and not killed their second wife and their second wife had been murdered and they are factually innocent of that thing. And so that's why that prior bad acts evidence was uh, improperly admitted and the appellate court was right for sending the case back for a new trial. So incredibly well put. Thank you for that. I, it's a hard concept to understand, um, but it, you you made it make absolute sense that yes, this person is on trial for this specific crime. I don't care all of the awful stuff that they may have done before, even if that awful stuff looks a lot like the awful stuff we're looking at here. You can't just bring that in 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 the hopes that that will muddy the waters enough to convict them for the crime here. And it sounds like that's exactly what they did in his prior case, even according to the Nevada Supreme Court. But the 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 reports on this were that they heavily re, le, relied on that prior evidence. It wasn't that it was just brought in as as kind of you know how we normally see prior bad acts brought in. It's kind of a a sideshow to the main event being the trial. But they heavily relied on it, and it was a trial where he was acquitted of those crimes as well, which is also a little a little more offensive. I'm just as a former prosecutor. Personally offended when I see prosecutors going a little bit too far, and this is what ends up happening is people end up getting their cases overturned, and now you're back in trial again, and with the risk that this man could walk. Um, And yes, that's not to say that prior acts of a defendant, if they are so similar to what they're being um, accused of, cannot be corroborative evidence. I had a, a trial when I was a prosecutor where a young lady was robbing GameStop uh, stores, the video game stores. 
And she always wrapped her face with a bandana and she always had remarkably pink shoes. Every single person said, I can't identify this person, but they were wearing a bandana. They were about this height and I remember the pink shoes. Well, that became a major part of the case. And we talked about that evidence. And yes, it came in as quote unquote prior bad act, but it was so similar that we could say, listen, this corroborates the evidence here. If you've just got a case where the the wife ends up dead in bed, and then all of a sudden, now you've got a case where it appears to be alleged break-in. Those are not similar enough. And I think even the Nevada Supreme Court agrees with that. And it's just frustrating for me to see them now having to go through this whole thing again because they were just a little overzealous um, the first time around. So my question being, how do you think um, they're going to change things this time around? Do you think they're not going to touch that evidence at all? Or do you think they'll try to get into it, but just be a little bit more cautious about how they do it? And then I guess my other question is, if they don't present this evidence, is there a way that the defense could open up the door to that evidence, even if the prosecution doesn't bring it in themselves? Sure. That's a cool. Those are both great questions. So, number one, I don't have to be prescient and guess how they're going to play this case out because their opening arguments have already occurred. And the prosecution's opening arguments have been very detailed and have steered clear away from that prior bad acts evidence as they should, which almost makes it a bit more offensive the fact that they leaned on them so heavily in the first trial because they have a statement uh, from Mr. Randolph that is not great. (laughs) He takes law enforcement through a walkthrough of the house four days after the shooting, the manner in which he behaves during that walkthrough and the way in which it contradicts the physical evidence are all at this moment highly incriminating they didn't need to do what they did previously so as far as what the prosecution's strategy is it's going to be to overwhelm with mr uh, randolph's own statement um which can be very devastating to the case and what was your second question is there a possibility if the prosecution says okay we're not going to present this in our case but is there a way that the defense could open up the door inadvertently and the prosecution gets that evidence in oh absolutely. i'm i'm, I'm thinking yeah, yeah. of something but i'm sure you're thinking of the same thing Go ahead. i'm not sure if i'm thinking of the same thing but <laughs> i know that i'm thinking of the one thing i'm always afraid to i always try to stay away from my client would never do anything like yeah. this you know yeah. like if you say that yeah. and I, i'm not laughing because it's funny i'm laughing because it's a defense attorney's biggest fear to accidentally say something and open the door to something very bad you know you can say my my client is if, if uh, Murdoch did it, you know, I'm the model family man. I'm um, I'm Alec Murdoch is who I'm speaking of. I'm the best possible husband. Great family man. My family loves me. Well, that was all evidence of his character. And now they could get into his financial crimes because that showed bad character. So you could open the door by saying what a great husband he is. And you can talk about, well, then what happened to all these wives? And then also, here's all the issues with his character that you would have never had to hear about before had defense counsel never made that a part of their case. Yeah. I agree. That's what I was thinking of, is that somehow them saying something so overly broad about he would never harm a fly. Oh, really? Well, let me ask you about this. Or if he takes the stand himself, no no indication that he might, but if he takes the stand himself, I, I, in fact, I think this alone might prevent him from taking the stand, the idea that the, that evidence is out there, because he could easily open up the door by just some slip of, you know, I've... 
I've, I've never experienced anything like this in my life. That's why I was so shocked by the events. Oh, really, sir? Well, isn't mm-hmm. it true? In fact, um, you could easily see that happening, but it, we'll, we'll see how it all fo- unfolds. We'll keep watching this case. It's interesting that you reference that video, Natalie, because that, that was the other thing. I remember watching this thing the first time around and I remember thinking this is going to come back to haunt the man because mm-hmm. it is so detailed. It's not a matter of many times people who end up being defendants give a statement to police and they're sometimes vague. I, I came home and I found her dead and I was so shocked and the guy was running and I shot him. But he is literally walking them through second by second where he stood, how many shots fired, where his wife's body was laying, all of this stuff that they are they are then going to spend the next few weeks analyzing to see if there's any consistencies from what the physical evidence or other evidence bears out. And I think that's what really caught him. We have some of that video um, that I want to show uh, to our, our viewers now. And I'd already started to run, and then I just reached up just like that, grabbed it, stuck it in my pocket, came around just like that, and about that time, he's right up on me, just right up on me. And we actually touched right about here, and he's short. He's short. And when he, I don't know if he gave me an elbow, but as we came around like that, I was kind of, Coming out, I was actually going to try to be slow, you know, and look out, but it just happened too quick. We came up, and he kind of banged into me about right here, and then he went over to about right here, and somewhere along here, I bit my mouth or something, trying to say something like, what the fuck, or something, and he looked kind of like, and I don't know if he was looking in here to see if there was somebody else or what, and there was a, he had on a sweatshirt, and I don't remember if I seen the handle in the sweatshirt, if I seen the handle down his pants, but he was doing something, going for something down in here. And as we got up in here and he kind of rushed up on me a little bit, and that's when I just pushed him, boom, boom, boom. And he started going out toward the shed. I don't know how many times I shot him, but I just, just kept right on going. So that's what I'm saying about how just that his overconfidence. I think what we're seeing is this man's narcissism play out. And I also think this is what we're seeing is a person who's got away with it before that's now becoming more and more emboldened. True? I totally agree. And another aspect of that walkthrough I'd like to point out, and this is not unique to me. I've seen other people point this out. His lack of any emotion to indicate his wife had just been murdered four days ago. Yeah. He was so focused on this is the story I'm going to tell you and I'm going to sell this performance to you. He's the center of attention. He's got the camera on him and he's he's a bit animated in court as well. So it seems like he quite likes the attention. He's not a grieving uh, spouse. And, you know, I don't know about anyone else watching. I'm married. If my spouse was murdered, I couldn't be in the same house he was murdered in, much less give a walkthrough of how I found his his body. So all of that is just uh, that video is not going to be great for him. And that's why I tell my clients to zip it and don't make any statements to the police. Yeah, no, excellent point. I'm so glad you pointed that out. At points, I think you can even see him grinning. I mean, he's in. it's not just that he's trying to be officiously helpful with police and and show them how everything took place it's like you said it's like he's enjoying the attention in this performance 
while he's talking about where he found his wife dead just days or hours earlier. You're right. Anybody anybody who had nothing to do with it, you would think would be a, an absolute basket case having to talk about those events. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, pretty incredible mm-hmm. stuff. Well, like you said, um, opening statements have, have already begun or are continuing as we're recording this. So we will continue to update everyone on this case. But in the meantime... That is our show. Natalie, thank you so much for coming on this week. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, First of all, thank you so much for having me. And thank you to your audience for being welcoming to me. Um, So you can find me on Twitter at NatLawyerChick. (laughs) You can find me on YouTube as NatalieLawyerChick. You can find me on Instagram as NatalieLawyerChickYouTube. Thank you all so much for checking me out. We do some great legal commentary over there, live streams, short form videos, just a bunch of variety of all the legal topics that you'd like to cover. Fantastic. We will definitely uh, check it out. And I'm your host, Josh Ritter. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ or at joshuaritter.com. You can find our sidebar episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we want to hear from you. If you've got questions or comments you'd like us to address, tweet us your questions with the hashtag TCD sidebar. And thank you for joining us at the True Crime Daily Sidebar.